Sandra Nichols. I'm here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, we have the second part of our conversation with Isaac Butler about Blues for Mr. Charlie, a play by James Baldwin from 1964. As we discussed last week, this play is about the murder of Emmett Till and the questions of violent versus nonviolent protest. Isaac is a co-host of Slate's Working Podcast and the co-author of The World Only Spins Forward, an oral history of a play, Angels in America. He's also got a book on the history of method acting that will be published by Bloomsbury soon. Um, I don't think we have the exact date yet. He knows a lot about method acting, though. Uh, so in this episode, we're going to hear how that applies to James Baldwin's life and work and why he eventually parted ways with those people um, over how they were producing this play. So we're going to jump right into that. Okay, so Isaac, you were going to tell us about the uh, production history, and I was actually very curious while I was reading this how it would ever hit audiences. I actually went and read the New York Times review from when it came out in 1964 because I was thinking like so much of this feels like it feels very different than what I think of as a successful play in many ways. Yeah. And I, I would love to talk a little bit um, about what you just make of it as a play. Cause I, I, I think there's some fascinating stuff it's doing with the mechanics of, of, of theater, which Baldwin says in his introduction, he doesn't like most plays. And I think you can see him kind of wrestling with what he doesn't like about them in the, in the play. But anyway, the play started, James Baldwin had actually a long affiliation with the actor studio. Um, he was the actor studio, which is sort of where the, the, the method and method acting comes from. It was founded by Elia Kazan, Robert Lewis and Cheryl Crawford, and eventually taken over by uh, Lee Strasberg. Uh, and then Kazan and Strasberg and Crawford ran it. And then Kazan eventually left and then came back. It has a long history. Anyway, um, Baldwin was uh, uh, affiliated with the actor studio. He was very good friends with Maureen Stapleton, who went on to be um, Maud in All in the Family um, and who was a founding member of the studio. And um, like that's how Marlon Brando met Baldwin is, you know, Maureen Stapleton would have these salons at her apartment and it was not all these people were famous at that point, but it would be like Brando and um, Shelley Winters and Maureen Stapleton and James Baldwin and Harry Belafonte and all sorts of stuff like that, hanging out and getting drunk. And um, uh, so Baldwin had a long affiliation with the studio and and with Kazan and Kazan had, had asked him to write something about Emmett Till and, and it took him a very long time to do it. And by the time he had finished a, a draft of the play, a five and a half hour long draft of the play, um, Kazan had left the studio and was uh, founding Lincoln Center Theater. And um, this very strange thing happened where the actor Rip Torn, um, Artie from the Larry Sanders show, amongst other things, um, sort of poached this play from Kazan and Lincoln Center to make sure the actor studio could still have it by promising Baldwin that he wouldn't have to change anything about the play that he didn't want to. And he plays Lyle, which is fascinating because you would think if you were Rip Torn and you had basically made this project happen, you would want to play Parnell because it's the better part. But he played Lyle. Um, and so they did it uh, as part of the Actor Studio Theater, which was this short lived. It lasted for a season and a half effort to produce plays on Broadway by the actor studio. And while they were developing it, there was a lot of turnover. Frank Corsaro was originally supposed to direct it. Uh, and he actually was fired from the project because he 
what's weird is every history I've read of the actor studio puts it some version of this way. He wanted to soften it, but Baldwin wanted it to be a polemic against the white race, which is a very weird way of depicting what this play is and how you can tell that white historians tend to write the history of the actor studio, because that's mm-hmm. just not what this play is at all. Um, and uh, so Frank Cassara leaves and Burgess Meredith, the penguin himself takes over as the director of the play. And so Burgess Meredith directed it on Broadway had a very, very difficult rehearsal process. There's a rehearsal at one point where James Baldwin gets up on a ladder to literally just um, scream at everyone in the room about what a terrible job they're doing with his work and to complain about the actor studio and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, uh, Rip torn is impossible to deal with. He keeps trying to direct the play. He keeps trying to rewrite the play. They do it on Broadway. It is a, critical but not commercial success because its audience is almost entirely uh, African-American and they set the ticket price very low to try to enable that that audience to come see it. Uh, but it's a huge play. I mean, it has like 35 characters in it and these enormous sets and all this other stuff. And so what eventually ends up happening is a group of kind of um, dignitaries take out ads in the New York Times, encouraging people to come to see it. Um, uh, wealthy people buy huge blocks of tickets and donate money to the show to keep it going and, and all this other stuff. That ad, if you can find it, is signed by everyone from Marlon Brando to Miles Davis. It's an incredible sort of piece of cultural history. Uh, and then the actor's studio takes it, the show to London. Uh, but before they take it to London, they fire Rip Torn, um, because he's so difficult to deal with. Uh, and they take it to London and it's performed with like very, very little rehearsal. The light design's not finished. So the actors are moving around in the dark most of the time. Um, members of the, the British national front, the fascist party come to the opening night and, um, yell at the cast to go back to Africa. Uh, and then it gets, it gets torn apart in the reviews the next day. And Lee Strasberg, the artistic director of both the actor studio and the actor studio theater gives a press conference the next day in which he says that the reviews are mostly correct and reminds the reporters that the actors in the show are mostly actually unaffiliated with the actor studio. Of yeah. course, the actors he's talking about are the black actors. Cause there were very few black actors in the actor studio and James Baldwin, uh, never forgave gave him James mm-hmm. Baldwin. So never forgave him that there is a later novel of his that has an incredibly unflattering, transparent fictionalization of Lee Strasberg as a character in it. Wait, which book is that? Um, uh, tell me how long the train's been gone. Okay. Um, there's an acting teacher in it and everything he says sounds like Lee Strasberg and it's this total gobbledygook. Um, he said there's a sort of vicious parody of Strasberg later on. And, you know, the play has not actually been done that often since I think it's, I mean, not only is it very expensive to do, but I think it's, my guess would be that it's seen as so rooted in its time and it is a somewhat flawed text in a number of significant ways that people don't really want to revisit it. But one of the reasons why I wanted to do it for this podcast is I actually find the play exciting in a lot of ways. And I think there's stuff about it. There's stuff about it that feels very old fashioned, like the Juanita stuff, but there's other stuff about it. Um, particularly how it's using the form that feels very fresh. And just in the summer with all the George Floyd protests, I just felt like, you know, maybe there's something worth salvaging in this play and doing it again. If you could get the money together to do Mm -hmm. it. The, um, 
the New York Times review from when it first came out that I read compared it to um, the Clifford Odets uh, Waiting for a Lefty. And I was thinking that there's there's a real difference between a left-wing call to arms, um, kind of like workers' rights play, and this play. And I can see how that um, that production history that you're talking about and the trouble of it um, that is wrapped up in the difference between the social issues that this play like that one has a very clear point of view, um, of like, there's really, there isn't a moral gray area in this situation. So the situation can't be described accurately as something that could have a moral gray area. Um, there aren't multiple perspectives in the play in a certain sense, um, there's almost more multiple perspectives in the play than there should be. Um, because, you know, Parnell having decisions to make about whether he stays loyal to white people or whether he acknowledges how transparently bad their behavior is um, as this group, this group that he's among, even though they are his friends. Um, but I don't think people go to plays to be lectured and I think that that may be one of the things that um, that doesn't work about it. Well, I do think that there's a certain kind of um, American theatrical tradition that the play fits into. And actually O'Neill is to me where I would go in looking for, you know, predecessors to this play um particularly Iceman cometh there's a there's a particular kind of um very on the nose style of american playwriting <laughs> that i think we think of as unsophisticated or i'm not saying you're saying that catherine but i'm just saying we think of it as sort of oh that's kind of on the nose and not very subtle and oh, blah 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 but that's actually where serious playwriting in america begins because that's eugene o'neill and um uh, and i think this play is right there in that thing in that uh that tradition in that I do think it's a deceptively tricky play in a number of ways, but at least if you're just looking at its dialogue, it, it couldn't be more on the nose. Like people say almost exactly what they mean almost all the time. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it's not coming out of a European psychological realist tradition. Really? It's, it's coming from this, you know, American social drama. The irony is in the framework rather than in the dialogue. There being, um, the characters are very sincere. There's not a lot of subtext, et cetera, and so forth, which, which I think, you know, we tend to think of those plays as lesser than I think yeah. sometimes with good reason. Okay. I have to do my harangue now. Are you Please. guys, I want to hear your harangue. <laughs> Okay, I've so sort this of been is... treading water until you're harangued. <laughs> wow. Now, this is going to include a lot of quotes, so at least the quotes can do a lot of the work. Um, so so this has been kind of boi- bubbling away at me since we did the passing episode. So it's kind of about how, how historically African-American writers have really struggled with the fact that they're expected to speak for the race. And, and on the one hand, felt frustrated by that as a restriction on their voice, but also felt in, inevitably drawn to doing just that and to attempting to do it effectively while not losing whatever was personal in their literary project. And how that has turned into like generations warring against each other. So, I mean, interestingly, in the, in the Harlem Renaissance passing generation, 
there was a lot of emphasis on assimilation and people still saw assimilation or like friendships between black and white people, marriages between black and white people as this huge transgressive thing, not only against the white, white mores, but against black mores at the time. Um, and, but that ultimately meant, and it's not like they were blind to the pitfalls of that. They, they certainly had much more faith that this was going to lead to the end of the problem in one generation. And you, you see a lot of that in the writing of the time. It's much more optimistic, you know, than the writing that comes after is like the birth of Afro pessimism, I think is in the failure of the Harlem Renaissance project. Um, but the literature that comes out of that, uh, I'm just going to quote from Richard Wright's response to it in Blueprint for Negro Writing of 1937, where he calls it, let's see, oh, this is, generally speaking, Negro writing in the past has been confined to humble novels, poems, and plays, prim and decorous ambassadors who went to begging to white America. They entered the court of American public opinion dressed in the knee pants of servility, curtsying to show that the Negro was not inferior, that he was human, and that he had a life comparable to that of other people. The fruits of that foul soil, which was a result, the, res the result of a liaison between inferiority complex Negro geniuses and burnt out black, burnt out white bohemians with money. Rarely was the best of this writing addressed to the Negro himself, his needs, his sufferings, his aspirations. So, and he's talking about two separate cultures, the one which is Negro folklore um, for the Negro masses is what he says, and the other which is written by the bourgeoisie, which he calls parasitic and mannered, and that is written for white people. Hmm. But then three years later, he writes Native Son, which is basically just a different version of this project of writing for white people. Um, and again, I'm just going to read something written by somebody else, which is Ayanna Mathis talking about Native Son. So, I mean, this is just a couple of years ago in the New York Times. Native Son sold an astonishing 215,000 copies within three weeks of publication. Thus, a great many people received a swift and unsparing education in the conditions in which blacks lived in ghettos all over America. Of course, black people already knew about all of that, so it's safe to conclude that Wright's intended audience was white. And in any case, I don't imagine many black people would have embraced such a grotesque portrait of themselves. Bigger Thomas, the hero of Native Son, is a rapist and a murderer motivated only by fear, hate, and a slew of animal impulses. Other black characters in the novel don't fare much better, they are petty criminals or mammies and have been so ground under the heel of oppression as to be without agency or even intelligence. And basically Baldwin, like very, very notoriously wrote an essay called Everybody's Protest Novel in which he concurs with this and really slams Native Son for being this crude piece of agitprop. Um, he says almost... And he says, all of Bigger's life is controlled, defined by his hatred and his fear, and later his fear drives him to murder and his hatred to rape. He dies having come through this violence, we are told, for the first time to a kind of life. And what's really kind of interesting is that Baldwin is obviously trying to avoid this, and I think part of the decision to, to turn the Emmett Till character into, you know, the, a version of Rufus from another country 
is trying to create a more complex political drama, something that isn't just agitprop, that doesn't create simple um, good characters opposed to evil characters. As like he also in everybody's protest novel attacks Uncle Tom's cabin for, I mean justly, pretty obviously for <laughs> being this kind of extremely crude melodrama that's just about brutal atrocities that we can all be horrified by. Um, but certainly, like Richard Henry, could be seen just as a, a more intelligent figure of the the bigger Thomas character. Like the bigger Thomas character is really entirely dehumanized, and Richard Henry isn't. But he is also very much an embodiment of black rage. He also like is partly defined by his relationships, his exploitative relationships on both sides with white women, where he is hoping that he's fucked up their minds forever. Um, so, so it's, it's sort of interesting, like what, where people start from and where people end up is entirely determined by this social stricture, this, this requirement that everything, I mean, and that this certainly isn't true of all of Baldwin's work, but I think it's true of this play and, and maybe is part of his relationship to trying to write a play, which is so much about the moment when the audience is actually physically in the room with what you've made. I, I don't know. Yes. Yeah. 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 You know, that, that's interesting that I, I like your harangue very much. And oh, good. There's a, there's a, there's a couple things that I would like to, to sort of yes. And it with, um, just to talk about ri- Yeah. Theater person. Yes. <laughs> let me work on my space work. Uh, the, the, one of them is just that I think the way Baldwin is trying to solve some of these problems has to do with meta theatricality and self-conscious performance. Um, and that to me is what feels so, so fresh about the play. So the weird thing about Richard is that the various versions of him that we see don't really cohere. Really? Do you know what I mean? Mm, like, totally agree. He, he is, and you know, I'm going to, I'll assume intentionally a pretty different person, depending which audience he's performing in front of, which I think is how he seems to see each of those scenes that he's in is as a kind of performance, whether it's with his father or with his friends, with the photos of the white women, uh, or once he's in the store and he's kind of performing to demonstrate Lyle's weakness, um, for his friend. You know, that, that, that there's this way in which, and he's also a performer by trade, right? He's a guitarist. He, he is actually a performer. That's his job. And so I think there's a way in which he's always performing that I find really fascinating. And then there's all these other layers of performance in the play as well. The play begins with this incredibly provocative scene, which is the scene of Richard's death. Although you don't actually see the death at that moment. You hear a gunshot and then Lyle says this thing about, how you know black people should die face down in the weed in Mm. the reeds although he uses the n-word and then it immediately jump cuts to the reverend telling a performer and you're not really sure who he's talking to yet that he hasn't said the the n-word convincingly enough he hasn't said it the Mm. way white people say it 
And it's important that that first moment with Lyle is kind of in darkness. Like you don't really see what Lyle looks like there. So you're really for a split second, not sure who the Reverend is talking to. And of course, what he's actually doing is running a nonviolent resistant workshop in which they're um, pretending to be white people hurling racist harassment at protesters to role play how to stay calm in those situations. So it begins with this weird enactment of a thing and then a rehearsal of this racism. And then there's, there's these constant moments of performance throughout, which again, culminate in that trial scene, which is very strange. It's in, in which there is really no hope that any truth can come out in that world in part because you know everyone is delivering some kind of performance for an audience that is actually reacting and shouting at them while they're giving their testimony and in which i think almost every single person who testifies lies about something if i remember correctly mm-hmm. including the african american characters so there's this weird way in which he's trying to use performance to solve some of these problems um i'm not sure how successful it is but you know i I was thinking about this because um i'm going to quote someone here shawnee anilo who wrote this great book called method acting and its discontents wrote about this play and what she mentions is that this play is actually the hinge in the politics of his body of work that his work before it is more liberal and his work after it is increasingly radical uh, and separatist. Interesting. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that this to her is the play where he's trying to figure out some way to knit those together. Um, and so uh, she says something like uh, uh, both blues for Mr. Charlie and tell me how long the train's been gone. Illustrate Baldwin's struggle to articulate a third way between the universalism that the, that method acting modeled and that had characterized Baldwin's own voice as a young writer and the separatism he would later embrace. And you can see that in, in the play in many ways, because right, like, like, there's no cultural differences between different kinds of method actors. There's not supposed to be, it's you use a method, right? Um, um, But there's this weird way in which he's throwing all these kind of meta theatrical ideas at it as a way of finding a way through these, these problems. I'm not sure he's wholly successful in doing that, but that's what I find really fascinating. That is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, I completely agree. Like not that I would have been able to put it in such sophisticated terms, but but I completely agree, and those are definitely the most most successful parts of the play. I think like the courtroom scene by itself is really kind of a work of genius. That's our second episode on Blues for Mr. Charlie by James Baldwin. Thank you to Isaac Butler for talking to us and to Adam Bear for our music. Also, we'd like to thank LitHub for hosting us. If you'd like to write to us, please either tweet us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Come back next week for a discussion with Benjamin Dreyer on Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House. 